Today marks the second Sunday in the season of Lent. As we've talked about before, Lent is this season uh, that's set aside for the church to take a good look at our patterns of thoughts and feelings and actions, asking ourselves, is this way that I'm living helping me become more like Jesus? Is this life that I'm living the life of a disciple of Jesus? I guess to be more accurate, Lent isn't merely a season of sort of looking in the mirror at ourselves. It's a time when we, in a perfect world, invite Jesus alongside and say, what do you see in my life, Lord? Um, After all, Jesus is often known as the great physician, and so we ask him to sort of like, hey, let's do a checkup. Um, We invite Jesus to ask us questions and make observations and maybe even to challenge our assumptions about how we see ourselves and, and see the world. In many ways, Lent can be analogous to going to the doctor or a dentist for a general checkup. It's sort of built into the schedule. At least, that's how it feels like at the dentist. Every time I, I don't like going to the dentist, even though I'm married to a dental hygienist, and uh, I feel free every time I get out of the chair. I'm like, that's done, I'll never have to go back. And as I'm headed for the door, the receptionist always says, so, let's get you down on that next appointment, right? And like a doctor and dentist, if they're doing, you know, good job to make sure you come back, they schedule you before you even walk out of the dang door so that you're, you know, and that's kind of like Lent. Like, it's just there on the calendar every year. You can't get away from it. There it is. It's time for the checkup. And when you go to the doctor, there's generally kind of a standard of health that they're looking for, you know, like, I don't know much about medical stuff, but the blood pressure and tests and, like, check the lungs and check the eyes and the ears and all the stuff. Like, is your body doing what it's supposed to be doing so that you can thrive in an embodied life? So what is the standard then for a spiritual checkup? Like, if during Lent we're we're talking to Jesus about um, my life, and like, what what would the standard be? Like, he doesn't take our spiritual blood pressure. There's no such thing. He doesn't look into my spiritual nose. I'm sure there's spiritual boogers in there. I don't know. Like, what is he he looking for? I I think that basically you could say that a, a flourishing disciple is summed up, and the way Jesus sums it all up, he says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that 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 commandment sums up all of the law and the prophets, That's, that's the whole Bible. It sums it all up in that one sentence, to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. The standard, the standard of spiritual health. And so when we enter the season of Lent, Jesus might work through a whole range of diagnostic tools to help us see how we're doing at that. He might work through spiritual practices, and you know, if you've been around Lettered Streets long enough, there's been several Lenten seasons where we've walked through different spiritual practices. You know, things like fasting can sometimes reveal to me that my appetites are spoiled brats and I comfort myself with anything I want to so that I don't have to really face the beast inside. So fasting can kind of reveal that. Prayer, contemplative prayer, just slowing down and quieting down, not producing something can reveal where I really place my values, right? Um, we focused on different scriptures as diagnostic instruments that Jesus can can look at us. So uh, a few years ago, we walked through the seven last words of Jesus, or uh, we've, we've walked from uh, Jesus's betrayal to his resurrection and crucifixion, taking a different segment of that narrative each week, and it's the text asked questions of us uh, as we walk through it. 
This year we're coming before the doctor, Jesus, and the diagnostic tools that he's employing to help look into our spiritual health is the Sermon on the Mount, um, one of Jesus' most famous and um, amazing teachings in Scripture. And as we encounter Jesus' teaching on human flourishing, we're forced to reckon with all sorts of questions that come up about our thoughts and our feelings and our actions and how we navigate the world. So last week, for example, Jesus invited us to consider our true motives behind living a life of discipleship that's following Jesus. Rather than doing things for for the praise of other people, uh, he suggested that we practice our righteousness or our right living for the reward of the Father who's promised us an imperishable gift. And in today's message, Jesus is going to get at the heart at one of our deepest desires, our relationship with wealth as it provides life for us versus true life in Jesus. In short, in short, Jesus is going to give us some investment advice that we're not likely to hear from Forbes or Fortune 500. And with that, I'd love to invite you to stand one more time as we read the passage. It's Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And for a lot of you, this is familiar, so you can certainly follow along, but maybe one way to approach the text would be just to close your eyes and to listen to the words as they wash over us. Again, this is Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Lord, we thank you that this passage, as challenging as it is to us, is supposed to be good news. It is in the gospel which means good news. And this whole sermon that you're preaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is supposed to be for human flourishing. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what it is the Lord is saying and help us to respond to it. Amen. You may be seated. If you're sort of paying attention to that reading, it may have appeared that I actually read three separate teachings of Jesus, one about treasures and one really weird one about people's eyes and then one about two masters. Um, And actually, those are all three part of one teaching. We're going to take each one of those in turn, but um, if you're a note taker, this would be the time I want to encourage you to open up your bulletin. There's a note section because I'm going to give you a little bit of an outline that I know for some personality types you'll appreciate. So um, I'm going to tip my hat to you of how I've broken up this passage in my study. Um, 
I'll be the first to say this is not the only way of looking at this passage. In fact, I've preached on this before and seen it quite a little bit differently. The meaning is the same, but the organization's a little bit differently. Here's how we're gonna organize it tonight. In the first section, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, I'm gonna call this section investment advice, okay? Investment advice. That's the one about the treasures. In the second section, Matthew 6, 22 through 23, I'm calling this one the investment diagnostic. The investment diagnostic. It's gonna reveal if our life investments are of lasting value or just short-term gain. And in the third section, which is Matthew 6, 24, I'm gonna call that the investment decision. The investment decision. Okay, and I'll come back to those three uh, as we work through it. So let's, let's start where we should start, the, the first section, which is the investment advice. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now just, just a word on treasure and heart, especially treasure, that's not a a concept that we talk about very often. Usually what comes to mind for treasure is some kind of pirate movie or pirate book with the chest that's like spilling over with pearls and gold stuff. And like, I read that and I'm thinking, I don't really have a problem storing up treasure on earth or in heaven. I like, I, I don't have one of those chests. I, it's not an issue, right? Um, that image makes the passage feel irrelevant, um, foreign to us. And so it's, I don't think it's necessarily helpful. Uh, but here's a helpful insight. In the Greek sentence, the Greek word for treasure is actually from the same root as store up. And so Torin's going to put the first um, slide up on the screen. And I know that not a lot of you read Greek. That's okay. But I do want you to look at the two Greek words that are in those parentheses. And you can see the first one, two, why am I looking up there? I've got it right here. One, two, three, four, five. The first six letters are the same. The root of those words is the same. So, thesaritse, the first one is translated in English as to store up, treasure, or preserve. The sentence is, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not thesaritse yourself treasures on earth, okay? So that's, that's that word for store up, do not store up. And then you've got this other word, thesaurus. Any word lovers out there? Your thesaurus, right, is literally a treasury of words. Isn't that cool? Because that word thesaurus means treasure. Huh? All you word lovers out there. Okay, so, so, so Torin, throw up this up. That's worth it right there. You can go home, Mel. No, I was kidding. There's going to be gospel today. But go ahead, Torin, and put up that second slide. And so just so we can see how the sentence works. Do not thesaurice your, for yourselves thesaurus on earth. Okay, so do not treasure treasures on earth. Do not treasure treasures on earth. Literally, that's what the sentence is saying. Do not treasure treasures on earth. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? The idea is something like this. Do not treasure earthly solutions for your future security. Do not treasure earthly solutions for your future security, but treasure treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, where your thesaurus is, <laughs> there your heart will be also. Your energy, your devotion, your worship. 
Okay, there's two aspects to treasure. There's probably more, but I just went with two because, you know, teaching moment. Um, first, there is the value of a treasure in and of itself, like as a tool to do some sort of work or some sort of thing in the world, right? So um, money, for example, is a treasure. It has value because we give it value, and it can do work for us. It can buy things. It can, um, you, you know, you can, you can do things. With it. You can feed people with it. You can do things with money. Money isn't bad. Jesus often talks about the importance of giving to the poor. You can't give to the poor if you don't have money. Okay, so, so it's not an inherently evil thing. Property is not a bad investment uh, if it's used to bless other people. There's nothing inherently wrong with having things or having, uh, you know, a, a, an appropriate retirement account, whatever that is, that's between you and the Lord. Okay, so like money is a tool, possessions are a tool, property is a tool that can be used for the glory of God. So that's one aspect of treasures. But the other aspect of our uh, treasures or our possessions is the value that we give them, right? So if you've ever had a small child who has maybe a favorite blanket and it probably costs $12 at Target or something, but that is a kid's treasure. You try and take that blanket at your own peril. You lose the blanket, you are staying up all night until you find the blanket. It is, so there's a value that we put onto certain things, and that can also become a treasure. So philosopher Dallas Willard wrote, treasures are things we try and keep because of a value that we place upon them. They may be of no value whatsoever in and of themselves or to any other person, Nevertheless, we take great pains to protect such things. Thus, we are said to treasure them. Willard continues, of course, we may also treasure things other than material goods. And here's where it gets really interesting. You're probably like, I'm fine. I don't really treasure anything. <clears throat> okay, now let's see if this hits you. For example, we might treasure our reputation or our relationship to another person or the security or reputation of our school or our business or our country, <clears throat> Christian nationalism, anyone? Okay, so like th there is, w treasure is the value that we place on something else, okay? And everyone treasures something or someone. Jesus is not telling us to stop treasuring things. In fact, one might argue that as human beings, it would be impossible to not treasure something or someone. Because humans are creatures motivated by desire. Motivated by desire. The question Jesus wants us to ponder it, is what is it that we most desire? What is it that we most desire? The investment advice that he gives to us is not to desire treasure or investments in our lives on things that don't last. In the ancient world, there's no banks, there's no retirement accounts, there's no social security benefits, there's no Medicare, there's no paid time off. If people actually had extra resources, they could invest that uh, amount of resources in property that then they could hope to hand down to other people in their family, 
They could have cash on hands in the form of, of coins, usually silver coins, and then they would have to take care not to lose those coins or not to have them stolen. There's no banks, so they put them in boxes, uh, dig holes often in the dirt floor of their homes, or hide them by the third oak tree by the fence on their property. I mean, it's literally that digging holes in the ground. I and mean, we, we still find coins to this day in archaeological digs from people who just hit them around. I used to hide money in my um, outlet plate. I would take that off when I was like a teenager. I would save up money and put it in. I don't, that sounds really like fire hazardy, right? But anyway, this. <laughs> so, so there, you know, there's no, there's no security like that in the ancient world. So people would literally hide their treasures in, in property or in coins. They would also, you could, you could store up money in buying expensive linens and things with like purple dye, red dyes, pink dyes, those types of things cost more. And so you could, you had an extra 100 denarii laying around, you could buy a nice linen thing and you hang it in your closet and um, you could always sell that back for another time, okay? The problem is that property can be taken right, by the next conquering army, which is just such a real reality, um, and we like to think we're past that, but Ukraine, right, uh, and, and other places in the world right now, Yemen, um, money hidden a hole is in a ground doesn't do anyone any good, for one, so the money just sits there and doesn't do anything, it doesn't collect interest, it doesn't help anyone, and then it corrodes, and it's liable to theft, Fine linens get eaten by moths, they get moldy from moisture, they get faded in the sun, and they get worn out with time, and in the end, we all die anyway. That's just reality. (laughs) So none of those things are really secure, right? And in the modern world, we think, well, we've got the rust problem solved because we've got copper coins and Bitcoin and all, all this kind of stuff, and we've got banks that are FDIC insured against thieves, and we don't have much of a problem with moths anymore because well, we just have chemicals for that, or we have clothing that are made out of chemicals that moths don't like because they're smart. They're like, that will kill us. You guys should probably not wear that. Um, (laughs) But the metaphor still stands. Like, lasting treasure is that which is about God's kingdom, about what's important to God. If we're investing our lives in our own treasures, in our own comfort, in our own reputation, even in our own good works, Yet apart from Jesus, we're wasting our time, is what Jesus is saying. That's his investment advice. Our bodies are going to give out. Our things can be taken or destroyed. Our efforts can be reversed. Like, every time there's like a changed president, like half the, the things that they passed, you know, it just gets reversed by the next regime or whatever. And the same is true in our own lives. Like, we can work really hard at something only to see the business we started just get sold off and traded for its pieces. You know what I'm talking about. So Jesus' investment advice is to pour ourselves out into the way of Jesus, to do what we do out of love of God and love for neighbor. Like, it is hard, but it's not complicated. Love of God, love of neighbor. Let's just keep coming back to that. Love of God, love of neighbor. How do we know if our desires are focused on the love of God and neighbor? How do we know if they're focused on the love of God and neighbor and not just focused on ourselves or some other object of our devotion? Well, let's talk about eyes. And that is the investment diagnostic. This is the part where it's like, oh, well, that's good advice. I'd like to know now how I'm doing at that. Well, Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, and this word is complicated, so let me just kind of parse it out for you. Uh, If the eye is clear... 
Another way of translating it, if your eye is good, if your eye is singularly focused, your whole body then, your whole self will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil or stingy, then your whole body, your whole self will be full of darkness. In the first century, people didn't really understand ocular physiology. Um, and so there were kind of two schools of thought, which actually I think we would be wise to consider. This isn't kids. This is not how the eye actually works, but it's how people understood the eye and the soul. The first view is called intro mission, not intermission like at a show, but intro mission. And in this view, it was the belief that, that every object, this microphone stand, emitted a value. An intro mission is that when I look at this microphone stand, it's coming into my eye and into my soul, and I'm being influenced by the value of this thing. I'm being influenced by the value of the eyes that I'm seeing and the people I'm seeing and the pews and the screen and, and all. So intro mission is when I look or when you look at things, we're taking in the values of things from the outside. The eye is seen as a gateway to the soul where we are susceptible to either be blessed by what we see or cursed by what we see, but very few people in the ancient world would have understood anything as neutral. So an intermission idea, just to be like hyperparabolic, would be like Medusa. You know the legend of Medusa? You look at Medusa and you turn to stone because there's some bad mojo getting in you through your eye. That's intro mission, okay? The second view is what has been called extra mission. By the way, these are all from like scholars in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century. No one in the ancient world called it extra mission or intromission. <laughs> That's just way, they're like descriptive words, right? So the second view is called extra mission, and in the extra mission view, think of the eyes as um, headlights on your car. So the, the, the soul that is in you is actually casting out through your eyes your own values on things. So what I look at, what I gaze upon, actually is receiving some value from me. So the saying, um, I'm sorry, uh, so think about your eye as sort of like a, a lantern or a flashlight emitting not just light but your own value upon a person or an object. So if you have a for example, a corrupted or cynical or greedy soul, then what we gaze upon will be, you know, I might see people as objects to be used or as people who are potential competition for my world or as something, I might see a natural resource as something that is a commodity rather than a creation. That, that's if I'm a greedy person on the inside. I, I, I'm casting that out of my eye onto things. But if, I, if I'm a person that's been transformed by Christ and, and filled with the Spirit, um, or you're just like a decent person, and you begin to look at people and you see them as created sisters and brothers, as people that have their own value and own freedom and not someone to be um, coerced or to own or, 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 or whatnot. Wealth, possessions, accolades, honors, all of it will be seen as a gift to the person who is looking with, with a whole heart and a, a whole soul. And in reality, ancient people didn't say, uh, well, what's your view? Do you have the extra mission view or the intermission view? They most often saw 
the eye as a simple gateway to the soul, kind of as a two-way street. Both of those views in play at any given time. They view the eye as a sacred doorway or window into the world and into the soul, Um, a sort of two-way street of allowing things in and interpreting the world through their own value. And if you think hard on that, or not even very hard, we sort of still do that today. So what does Jesus mean by having a bad eye or an evil eye compared with a good eye or a clean eye? Uh, To put it simply, if your eye is bad, it refers to greediness in life. If your eye is focused on what is worldly or fading away and you make that your light, your goal, your treasure, rather than Jesus, who's the light of the world, then what you have in you is actually darkness. E. Stanley Jones said, what gets your attention gets you. What gets your attention gets you. So then what is a simple eye or a good eye? It means to have a generous disposition. The eye is linked with generosity throughout Scripture, and one clear example is Matthew 20, 15. And in this example, Jesus tells a parable. You probably recognize it. It's about these these day laborers. So there's a, a master who has a field, and he goes to the street corner where the people are waiting for a job. Today, we still have day laborers who wait on certain areas of, of town, and uh, you can, if you've got a, a business, you can sometimes go pick up people for a, a day's work. And the, the, the business owner says, I'm going to pay, I'll just make up a number, I'll pay $100 if you come work for me. Comes out at like 9 a.m., picks up Stella, says, I'm going to pay you 100 bucks. will you work for me today? Boom, you come in, we're going to work 9 to 5. Well, the day's going, we're not quite getting where I want to go, so then I come up, I get Justin at noon, I say, Justin, will you work for 100 bucks today? Yeah, Stella doesn't know about that, but Justin's cool with it. And then um, we've got to make a final push around three. I get Ryan Kennedy over here, 100 bucks, come on, work for me. And he works from three to five, okay? Now the day's over, and I come, and I start to give the wages. I start with Ryan, or I start with Stella, I give $100. She's like, yeah, that's what we agreed to. Then I go to Justin, and I give him $100, but he hasn't worked as much as Stella. But Stella's kind of like, ah. No, she has a generous heart. She wouldn't say that. But anyway, you, you get the picture. And we finally get to Ryan, and both Justin and Stella are now looking like, what? That's not fair. He gets 100 bucks for working two hours? Oh, okay, and so Jesus, after, after all of this, he says, they're all grumbling, and he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own, meaning his money, his finances, or is your eye envious or bad or evil? Same word as in our passage, because I am generous or good. Is your eye evil because I am generous? So to have a good eye means to have a generous eye. It means to look upon the world and other people with a disposition of giving rather than dominating and owning and taking. The good eye is generous because the one with the good eye treasures treasures in heaven. The good eye is simple, it's uncluttered, it's content with what it has, and thus it's able to hold on to possessions and resources with a loose hand, with an open hand, recognizing that everything that I have, whether it be a physical thing or a monetary thing or a positional authority thing, is a a stewardship relationship with God, not an ownership relationship with God. On the other hand, Jesus warns us against greed. And he tells the parable 
that Mike read earlier for the scripture reading out of Luke 12. And there's this man, and he's, he's got, he's just, business has gone really well for him. Crops have just multiplied, and he's got all this abundance of grain, and he says to himself, what should I do? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'll tear down the old ones, and we'll store this stuff up, and we will retire early. It is the American dream in Palestine. And I'm not going to be able to dig into the passage because I'm preaching on a different one, but let me just say, from, just from a casual glance in that passage that Mike read, the man in the story uses the word I. What will I do? How should I react to this abundance? He uses the word I six times and the word my four times. And in his reasoning in that whole passage, he never once considers honoring God, serving other people, and Jesus at the end of that calls him a fool. He calls him a fool because when death comes, all you've worked for is gone. And instead, Jesus said we should be rich toward God. We should treasure up treasures in heaven. How would we do that? Because when we love people, when we serve people, when we, when we make our lives about the kingdom, none of that is wasted. And it lives on. So the, the issue is actually surprisingly practical. In our text, Jesus does not say, do not store up for yourselves treasure. He doesn't say that. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But Jesus does command us to store up treasures in heaven. I know that's weird language. Like, just to clear up any misconception, there's no bank in heaven <laughs> where, like, you're doing this stuff and, like, you can, there, you, like, there's no app on your phone. You can see the accounts in heaven. It's like, oh, it's building interest. I'm like, like you do with your retirement account. I don't know if you, I do that sometimes. Like, oh, gosh, things are really dire right now. But, um, but my heavenly accounts, just, man, 12% a year. That's really great. I'm just, you know, uh, there's nothing. That's not what it's talking about. It's not like a bank in another place where you're building up this, this treasure. It means that when we begin to devote our lives to the way of Jesus, we gain treasure of peace and purpose and freedom and blessing. We're able to receive freely and give freely. And while I do think that there is an incredible honoring that's probably going to take place in the new creation, this isn't just talking about some other, like after you die kind of stuff. Like it's really life giving now. There's freedom in having a loose hand on your stuff now. That's what Jesus is talking about. So as you receive what Jesus is saying in this text, this diagnostic part, ask yourself, how is my eye? Am I committed to Jesus and generous, or am I finding it hard to be open and free? Maybe Jesus is showing us a conflict that is alive in ourselves, which brings us to the third section, the investment decision. The investment decision. Jesus says, now he's just getting blunt. I mean, all the I stuff is kind of weird, and you have to unpack that. Um, but this is pretty clear, right? Like, no one can serve two masters. <laughs> you can't serve God and wealth, is what he says. Um, he does not say, you know, no one should serve two masters. He doesn't say that. He says no one no one can serve two masters, because, not because it's really difficult, but because it's impossible. It's just not possible. It is possible to be, let me, let me just give some, 
some real life examples. Like it is possible to be devoted to your family and to do it out of the love of love for God and love for neighbor because your family is your neighbor and God can still be your master. Okay, that is a possibility. It is possible to have a career in which you live out your God-given vocation and God can still be your master. It is possible to devote your life to justice in the world and God could still be your master. It is possible to build wealth and to use that wealth to provide for the needs of others and God can still be your master. And I could keep going with that with all of the normal things we do in life. But each of these examples, father and family and work and our life cause and wealth, they can all become idols and so can really everything if we're not careful. And these things can become false gods in our lives. Jesus, you know, what's interesting is like we, a lot of scholars think that Jesus probably spoke and taught in Aramaic. Um, which is the, like a colloquial language in Palestine, especially among Jewish people. And then uh, it was translated into the lingua franca, the, the language that most people spoke in the ancient world, which was Greek. And so in the Gospels, we have all of these, it's in Greek, the, the, the manuscripts that we have. What's interesting to me is that Matthew preserves this word. So if you're reading in your Greek text, you would have this Aramaic word mammon. Um, let, let, me, let me read it for you. It says, um, no one can serve two masters for either he will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon is the word. And he uses this word mammon because in the first century it had become a way of describing a false god. The dictionary meaning of mammon is property, but it came to mean whatever possession or pursuit we put our faith in besides God. It's what we put our trust in. It's what we devote our lives to. Anything, it can be mammon. We can find mammon in our work, in finding financial security, in seeking control, in being liked by other people, in the right doctrine, or in being seen as a great person. Most often, mammon has to do with money. Money is a great tool, but it is a horrible master. Mammon means lots of things, but it at least means wealth. And Jesus is clear. We can't serve two masters. And this passage is supposed to be challenging. Um, it's always been challenging, and I know we talk about pandemic a lot, but I mean, man, these two years have been challenging. They ha- it has rattled our cage, especially for a generation, if you're in a generation um, where you haven't had a big, you've not walked through World War II or Vietnam, um, it's it's one of the first big things that's altered your life out of control, where uh, your best efforts are thwarted, where um, you, you watch your retirement account do this, a lot of this, and um, it, it just has, it's shaken the things that we think we can count on, right? And this, it, is, it has caused a lot of angst within everybody, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, it's tempting to say, you know, I I really want to be careful. I really want to hold on to what I have because I don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's harder to be generous for some people during this season. 
right? And that's okay. I want to remind us as we close out this passage that it is good news. Jesus wants to set us free from bondage to mammon, free from slavery to earthly values and possessions that don't save us in the end. He wants us to be free from that shackle. And the good news is that Jesus addresses people, his disciples, who are already saved by grace, people already in God's kingdom. Jesus is addressing them knowing that they're struggling with this. He addresses us, knowing like, like it's not shocking to him. That's why we have this teaching. So like, oh, I feel really ashamed. I shouldn't struggle with mammon. No, he's like, everybody does. That's why I have to teach on it. That's why it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And that gives me, oh, okay, you're not surprised. In fact, you love me enough to actually stir the pot with me a little bit in this diagnostic session. Thank you, Dr. Jesus. Um, Jesus knows that we will struggle with divided allegiances. That's kind of a human thing, and he's not shocked. This message is not a list of things that you and I have to get right for Jesus to accept us. It is an invitation to live into the freedom that Jesus already died to give us. Jesus is not Contrary to the title, I kind of did that on purpose to shake it up at the end. He's not offering us investment advice. He's offering us life itself. He's offering us him. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you um, are secure enough to say hard things. And we thank you that you love us enough to... um, to talk about the things that are so central to our own insecurities and fears and yet really unleash a way of true life and freedom. And I pray for myself and for each one here, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us where we're at and that you would give us courage uh, to follow where you're leading, even if it's just one step in your direction. Amen.